got uh, Jeffrey O. Stahl. He's the president of the International Personal Protection Incorporated, which provides expertise on design, evaluation, selection, and use of personal protective clothing, equipment, and related products to end users and manufacturers. He is considered one of the leading experts in the field of personal protective equipment. And uh, we had the pleasure of having him in exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio last month. And uh, just kind of want to do a follow-up and share your expertise with uh, the rest of our listeners here. So first of all, thank you for uh, for making the time to meet with us. I know you're coming from home, right? Austin, Texas right now? Yeah, that's uh, I'm in town right now. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today. Perfect. So I know you and I could have conversations just we could probably have multiple, multiple episodes of this, but for right now, let's just kind of concentrate on NFP 1851. Right. I know the, the fourth edition just recently came out, and I thought you'd be a great person to kind of just let everybody know what that update included and, and how that's different than uh, the previous updates. Well, certainly, but I you know just to make sure everyone's on the same page, uh, NFPA, of course, writes standards for the, the fire service. And uh, many of those standards that firefighters may be familiar with include things like NFPA 1500 that addresses occupational health and safety issues and, and requirements. And then there's some product standards, say for turnout clothing, NFPA 1971. NFPA 1851 is a little bit different. It's a standard that's directed to the fire service, so for fire departments and firefighters, specifically on the care, maintenance, and selection of personal protective equipment for structural firefighting. So the standard's been around for a while, um, goes back to the uh, early 2000s. And as Jim pointed out, it's been updated now in its new fourth edition, which actually just issued about uh, a couple months ago in August. So the standard covers cleaning and care of PPE, and this has become increasingly important. So the newest edition, the fourth edition, has really been revamped. Uh, it addresses cleaning in a lot greater detail than ever has been before. And this, of course, these concerns or areas have come up as a result of increased worrying about gear being a medium to which firefighters are exposed. Now, the gear itself offers a level of protection from exposure on the fire ground to various um, hazards such as smoke and particulate, and to a very limited extent, fire gases. But the reality is that the clothing itself becomes contaminated on the fire ground. And as a result of that contamination, and some of the facts that the contamination can remain in the clothing, it's persistent, it doesn't evaporate or go away, um, it has to be cleaned. Otherwise, firefighters have continued exposure to those contaminants, and it's thought to be one of those sources that unfortunately has resulted in increased rates of cancer among firefighters. So in this new edition of NFP 1851, we put a lot of work into trying to change when clothing is cleaned, how it's cleaned, and to provide as much confidence that it's being cleaned correctly. So let me address how we've done that. Um, in the the first instance, when to clean clothing, it used to be that clothing should be cleaned at least once a year and that it should be cleaned after it's been exposed, but it's pretty ambiguous. And so most 
departments read that as, okay, I clean my gear once a year and I'm okay. Well, the fact is that the clothing can get dirty and contaminate after any structural fire. So one of the big changes that we made is we said, okay, if you're exposed to products of combustion, that meaning you went on air, we're in, on the fire ground, and in an ideal age environment, then you need to assume that that clothing has been contaminated and needs to be cleaned. And when I say cleaned, that means being subjected to an advanced cleaning, which usually means taking it out of service and having it washed in a machine uh, using special procedures to get the, as much contaminant out as possible. So that's, that's part one. Um, the other part of this is that the clothing cleaning procedures were a little bit ambiguous but that manufacturers dictate what those procedures should be, and they still do to some extent. But we put more detail in, particularly not only cleaning the garments, which many departments have already been doing, but for gloves, footwear, helmets, and so on, most of which are manual-based procedures but still need to be cleaned, just like the clothing. Uh, so those procedures were... Um, greatly enhanced and the requirements among the, the cleaning. So uh, step one, products of combustion equals contamination requiring advanced cleaning. And step two is uh, is cleaning all the gear, you know, whether it's stuff that is easily cleaned or not. Uh, one of the other things that was added in this new edition is we used to have something called routine cleaning. And it was rather ambiguous as to what that meant. Generally it meant the firefighter rinsing the clothing off and then trying to put it back in service. But this actually went to what we call now preliminary exposure reduction. And preliminary exposure reduction happens to be what a lot of people refer to as on-scene or gross decontamination. It's really a term that's borrowed from the hazmat community. But we call it preliminary exposure reduction because all it's really doing is taking away the, the surface contamination of the clothing it doesn't really clean it, but it does make the clothing more safe to handle. And then after that is done, the clothing is supposed to be isolated, bagged, and then subjected to this advanced cleaning. So it's a two-step process in terms of having preliminary exposure reduction on the scene and then followed up with actual full cleaning. Um, and this is a this is a big deal because uh, most departments hadn't been doing that, although we're we're seeing that being a transition in the marketplace already with the fire service adapting more with uh, on-scene preliminary exposure reduction. So that's that's one of the big changes. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the other thing that was important is we knew that there are various cleaning practices out there. And, of course, with gear cleaning and the market being what it was, there's different producers of machines and, and different... Um, suppliers of uh, the chemicals of detergents or cleaning agents and so there's a lot of mystery out there as to what works and what doesn't work. So we instituted new procedures that were developed from the NFPA's research foundation, the Fire Protection Research Foundation, to verify that cleaning was reasonably effective. And I use that word reasonably because what we learned and what people have actually been learning over the last couple of decades is most of these conventional cleaning processes do remove a lot of contamination, but they don't remove everything. They remove a lot of it. And so we set requirements by which independent 
service providers. Those are outside organizations that provide cleaning services to fire departments, as well as manufacturers that sometimes clean the clothing that they need to verify that their procedures do indeed remove contaminants. And we came up with a process where they could economically do that and, and have that information provided then to the fire service. Um, we also set additional requirements on how the cleaning's done, the types of machines, the processes for that, and again, more detail. And what we couldn't cover as a requirement, we put it as informative annex information in the, in the standard so that fire departments can look back to the appendix and, and learn things that might otherwise not be a requirement but would but provide advice and guidance. So a lot of changes in NFPA 1851 in, in this cycle. And we're already seeing uh, results of the fire service adapting to this uh, these changes. No, it's perfect. It's some great stuff there. Um, I know one of the things I talk about is I think in general we're pretty good about cleaning our gear in an extractor, you know, our hoods, our gloves. But we often, and you kind of touched on it real quick, but you, you, we often forget about our helmets and our boots. And I love how inside there it's very specific on just kind of a reminder. You need to clean these as well every time after use. So yeah, you know, a, a good majority of departments have a second set of gear. But when we say second set of gear, we're just talking about, again, jacket, pants, gloves, maybe a second hood. Nobody has that I know has two boots or two helmets. So we need to make sure that we can decon that before well, even putting on our second set. Well, you're very correct about it. In fact, we're doing a survey right now. In fact, Jim, I need to get this survey out to you, but we're trying to assess what departments are doing. And we have questions, for example, when you, with this two sets question, you know, do you have extra set of gear? And then, and like, again, a lot of people think that's usually just garments. Often it just, it is for those departments that have that luxury. But we do find that the that most organizations don't have a second helmet or, or boots. And on top of that, whereas there may be services provided within the department or the ability to offer cleaning of, say, the, the garments, the gloves, and the hood, fire, individual firefighters are generally responsible for cleaning their helmet or their, or their boots. And ultimately, because it's difficult or it's not spelled out very well, or for example, leather boots take a very long time to dry, or it's difficult to separate out components of the helmet, they don't get clean. So we, we were trying to be as informative as possible in that in part of the cleaning process, but we realized it, it's still difficult. Um, and those areas, you know, the boots in particular are gonna be heavily contaminated and often don't get clean. Helmets, the uh, ear covers can become and the suspension can become contaminated. You know, the shell is one thing, but when you get to interior components that actually touch the individual's face or uh, are against, rest against their head, even with the hood on, you still can have some issues of contaminant transfer. So we're trying to address those in a, in a more straightforward fashion, get industry to have easily removed textile components on their, on their helmets, which has been a, a bit of a push but we are moving in that direction and we are telling everyone that they do need to clean the entire ensemble. That's great. You know, when I, I usually do a survey when I'm teaching a class and I just ask them like raise of hands, how many of you have ever 
taken that inside liner out of your helmet and washed it. And it's usually about, uh, you know, two people out of 20 that raise their hands. So it's very neglected uh, part of our ensemble. And I know from my department, granted it's a fairly large department, but I could think of seven or eight guys that have had skin cancer right where their helmet sits, right across their forehead, which is an area of high absorption because they just, they never cleaned it. They didn't think about it. They, don't, they never took the time. Well, you got to remember that sometimes they're wearing their helmet without a hood. So, I mean, you don't even have that buffer, you know, the hood between the helmet and the face, facial skin or head skin. So, and and I, I had to fight with industry to, to get them to put in the last edition of NFP in 1971 to have a ease of removal requirement for helmet components that should be cleaned more frequently. And and I, I think the industry's come around a little bit on that. And most most organizations, most responsible manufacturers are endeavoring to to provide products that make that a little bit easier. But there's a lot of legacy products. You know, helmets last for a long time. So um, a lot of that stuff isn't easy for the firefighter to do. And if, because it's not easy, then it's not going to get done as often as it should. Nice. Now, uh, one of the things I ran into a little bit this summer was I went to, I worked with a, several volunteer departments and they either weren't washing their gear really at all because they didn't have an extractor or they were just using a typical clothes washer. Um, not a high yeah. efficient one, just, uh, you know, the one with the tumbler in the middle. Could you, and I've seen this pop up more and more often, actually. Could you kind of describe why that may not be uh, such a good idea to use? Well, um, no, this is a great point. In fact, a, a position that we took in the standard, uh, we are now saying that any clothing cleaning uh, garments should be done in a washer extractor. And with that, what a washer extractor is, is first of all, um, it's a machine that's usually kind of a, it's a heavy duty machine. I mean, some of them can be really big, but there are smaller ones out there. Essentially, it's a front loading machine. So the door's gonna be open out in the front, still on the top. And it's and instead of having an agitator, it's just a, a drum and the clothing sits in there and it rotates down. So basically, the as the drum rotates, the clothing gets lifted and then dropped. And a washer extractor, at least the type that we're advocating now or requiring, is that it has to be programmable. I mean, your typical washing machine at home, even if it's not one of the high efficiency machines, which looks like it uses hardly any water at all, which would never work on turnout clothing, um, has a very limited number of cycles. So this needs to have a pretty extended wash cycle where there's detergent injected and then there's multiple rinse cycles because the clothing, even when it's separated out between shells and liners, is still reasonably complex. It's more complex than anything you wash at home, generally. And because that's the case, you have to have procedures that are going to be more likely to penetrate and remove those contaminants from the gear. So key point is this washer extractor is, the, is a machine that is going to uh, work on complex clothing because it doesn't have a central agitator like most top loading machines is, it's going to produce less damage. Now, why is this clothing damaged in a washing machine with an agitator? Well, remember that you've got things like hardware and trim and other things that you typically don't have on your regular everyday clothing. And those things get beat up, the agitator is working to actually create mechanical action in that wash load. And even though 
this gear is relatively rugged, it beats it up and shortens its service life considerably. Um, the new high efficiency machines in terms of washing turnout cooling, absolutely, totally deficient. They're worthless for this. Um, it just isn't enough water or detergent that gets into this clothing and you know, in the visibly weak and removing any kind of contaminant. So it really left with washer extractors. And I know this is a hardship for some departments because you know how many of them either have those machines or access to them. So they have one or two choices. If they don't buy a machine, they can try to go to a, a public laundromat, which I kind of frown on because you're taking relatively contaminated clothing into a public space and exposing all the individuals there, or you're really you're really having to go to an independent service provider. These are groups that provide cleaning services and inspection and repairs uh, to get that clothing cleaned properly. And if it's not cleaned properly, then there's one or two things happening. Either the contaminants don't come out and it's not even worth washing it, or if you or the clothing itself gets damaged. And now clothing may have been good for six, seven, eight years, may only be good through for three or four years because it wasn't washed. I've seen clothing absolutely destroyed because it wasn't washed properly. And you think, wait a minute, this is turnout clothing. We're going into these crazy, dangerous situations. This stuff is rugged. But believe it or not, washing is one of the more destructive forces on clothing. And if it's not done properly, it can be high damaging and reduce the not only the performance of the gear, but certainly its service life. Nice. Well, well, thank you for that. I know that clears up a lot of things uh, regarding washing our gear. Uh, you kind of touched on it earlier, but would you would you mind uh, talking a little bit about uh, the preliminary exposure reduction? Yes. So, first of all, I want to make sure that it's, it's a lot of syllables. Preliminary exposure reduction certainly sounds more complicated than gross decon, but we chose that term or terminology very specifically to make sure that we're not conveying or misleading individuals what's happening with this process. So preliminary exposure reduction is attempt to remove some of the contamination in the clothing on scene. So on the fire ground, firefighter comes out while still on air, they get either go through a wet or dry method. So the wet method is simply using a hand line to be something like a garden hose uh, and that is used to rinse off the firefighters so any kind of particulate smoke particles on the outside those get uh, taken off by the wet stream and then with a with a, a soft or hard bristle brush they uh, get scrubbed on the outside with a detergent it could be something like um, liquid de uh, detergent used for dishwashers uh, and that are hand washing dishes and that's used to make a soapy solution and they get scrubbed down on the exterior of their clothing and equipment and then they get rinsed again and it again is to reduce the surface contamination but it doesn't remove all the contamination you're not getting inside the clothing uh, where some of this contamination penetrates you're not uh, you know, you're really strictly dealing with the surface and that's why we call it preliminary exposure reduction it's a pre-step to actual full cleaning, and it's intended to make the clothing safer when it's being taken off, as well as then it's transported to being cleaner, cleaned more extensively elsewhere, whether it's back at the department or at an independent service provider. 
There's also a dry method where, depending on the circumstances, maybe it's the weather, maybe it's the resources available, situation, that it can be done with dry. So they can, there are brushes that can be used to uh, essentially sweep off the particles from the exterior. It's not quite as effective for moving as much contamination as the wet method, but it's still better than nothing. It does help reduce uh, a lot of that exterior contamination to make less contaminant likely to transfer to the individual wearer or to anyone else that happens to handle that clothing afterwards. Nice. So I wanted to kind of pick your brain up, up in your figure out where you stood on this. Um, being in Ohio, uh, you know, earlier this week I was wearing shorts and then a few days ago I had snow. So um, it's kind of a little crazy here weather-wise. And I know I get major pushback in areas that have cold weather regarding this wet preliminary exposure reduction, this wet decon. Right. My first question to you is if you use, because I hear this all the time too, if you if you do the wet decon, does it um, is that gear out of service uh, at, as soon as that's done? It, it really is. And so so the way we set the standard up is you, you generally don't do. I mean, there are certain circumstances where you may just do preliminary exposure reduction, but when that gear is wet, um, you're pretty much taking it out of service. The other thing we want to do, we think this step may also encourage which I know some departments are going to frown on, but it really is to protect the, uh, the far, individual firefighters from unnecessary exposures. The firefighters themselves need to clean up. So, you know, whether it's using wipes on the scene, but you need to take a shower relatively soon after being on the fire ground and exposed, because as good as the gear might be, there's still fire gases and smoke particles that penetrate in past the gear itself onto the individual skin. That's why you smell, smell like smoke. It's because there's residual particles that pulled in some of those fire gases, and that's stuck to your skin. So you need to do that. So, yeah, the gear comes comes out of, has to come out of service because the real intent here is that preliminary exposure reduction is a prerequisite for advanced cleaning. So it comes out. Now, again, there are concerns. Okay, I'm doing this outside, and it's below zero, and it's cold water and I'm already freezing because I'm standing around, uh, and, and it may not always be viable to have that done if the, the weather or the other circumstances are extreme. So that's why we have the dry version in there. Again, not as effective, but certainly works. But the, the, the sense here is that this is just a prerequisite for fence cleaning and the gear is coming out of service. We recommend in the standard that after preliminary exposure reduction, the gear is taken off of the uh, individual firefighter and it's bagged and then it's transported to where it can be properly cleaned. Because preliminary exposure reduction, the reason we use that term is you're not cleaning it, you're just helping to eliminate some of the contaminant that might otherwise transfer to yourself or to others. Sure. Yeah, it does, it does not replace going back and washing your gear in an extractor, correct? It does not. It is not. That's why we intentionally don't call it a cleaning process. Okay, perfect. Now, how would you prefer that contaminated gear get back to the station to get washed? Well, um, there's a variety of different techniques that I think have been posed. I mean, right now we, we are advocating or 
saying that the gear should be put in a plastic bag. Um, and we actually even say that the thickness of the bag should be one of the more robust types of bags. We have a, a thickness that's a minimum thickness that's recommended. It should be transported separate from the firefighter. Um, there's this idea of the clean cab, uh, the concept that's being promoted by many departments that isn't completely practical, but if the gear is bagged, transport it back, to, you know, whether it's picked up by a logistics vehicle or it's picked up by um, taken back on their apparatus for which the firefighters are assigned, whichever way the department decides is the most amenable method, it, it's isolated. It's bagged and isolated. So that's, that's the way that we are now dictating that this process should run until it is cleaned. So it's it is a logistics burden, um, and it does expose the fact that fire departments that don't have a second set of gear for each individual now have to come up with spare gear for that that uh, company to go back into service. And it's a I know it's a it's an issue that limited staff organizations are are, are struggling with is that. You know, can we do the, all these things that we are now requiring as part of the 1851 standard? Because it does create a, a serious logistical and staffing concern for the department. Sure. Uh, one of the things I'll add to that is, because I've, I've seen this happen a few times now, when you are bagging your gear, try your best to not use a black trash bag because I've seen it now in multiple places where that gets actually mistaken for trash and that set of gear gets thrown away. So try to label it or use some type of different color bag so you end up, you know, so you don't throw it away. No, have that's, that's a great, that great point. Yeah, I have. I actually have. Uh, it's been reported multiple times. And clear bags obviously makes it obvious that you got a set of gear in there. Um, but you're right. There could be, either, whether it's a ta somehow tagged or indicated that this is being used to transport turnout clothing that needs to be subjected to clean later on, that's fine. The other thing that's real important about this bagging is if the gear gets bagged, remember if it's gone through wet preliminary exposure reduction and you leave it in the bag for too long, that can be just as harmful. I've actually gotten sets of gear where someone sent uh, gear to me that say after an, for an investigation after an injury or something like that and they left they got it wet left in a bag bag didn't get open for maybe a week or two that gear was ruined because of the mold and mildew that grew inside the bag so it's for temporary transport um, gear should not be maintained in that bag there should be some procedures recognition that the gear needs to be taken out of the bag whether it's even placed in a holding area where it can dry off or actually go into the cleaning itself relatively soon after this process has occurred. Nice, very good. Um, kind of lastly, talking about gear, could you kind of describe um, separate from our, uh, our gloves and the outer shell? Well, um, so um, just to make sure I got your question right, Jim. So you're asking about um, handling gloves uh, with the outer shell or, or because there's right now one of the requirements that has actually been around for a long time is that garments get separated between shells and liners and those get cleaned separately. 
Um, and there's different uh, philosophies on whether you, what else you can wash with that, you know, if you're washing a machine. By the way, one of the issues we're just talking about, hoods also fall in that category because they're often machine washed. And whether they go in with the, the liners or the, or the, the shells, it, it can be an issue. Uh, what we see, of course, the, the outer shell is likely have a lot of hardware, zippers, Velcro, hook and loop closure tape, which can stick to everything, uh, can ruin things. So uh, there's some concerns about that. But generally, most things that are just as equally exposed, like dirty, should go in with the shelves. And some ways to deal with it, of course, is to use a laundry bag for, say, hoods that help protect that from getting snagged on, on the outer shelves of the garment. And gloves can be done separately or uh, as a batch or uh, with the gear. We generally like to suggest that things be done separately as, as wherever possible, just because it helps the cleaning be a little bit more uniform than when you have really heavy items with very light items inside a wash load. Um, but right now we're not actually prescribing that level of detail. Um, gloves also, I like to point out, um, there's always been the concern that because they can't be separated, uh, first of all, when they get wet inside a laundry load, they're going to be really wet and it's going to take a long time to dry it. So coming up with a process for drying them. Secondly, there's always been concerns of taking outside contamination and then transferring on the inside because again, they don't separate. And then lastly, and this is hugely important, is leather doesn't hold up to repeated washing as say, well as say textiles do, uh, fabrics. So the leather can tend to get stiff and if it's not washed properly, uh, can, the gloves can have a really shortened service life. So a lot of issues with dealing with these other items. I mean, garments are straightforward, generally speaking. You start dealing with some things like gloves that are different materials and different types of construction, then you, you enter into some realms of issues that uh, you have to work through with and experience and understand that the methods that generally are used for other things don't always apply equally across the range of equipment and clothing that you wear. Nice. All right, well, let's get you out of here. I want to ask you some of my uh, 25 random questions. Okay. Um, I, I let you kind of choose your own fate here. Um, so if you would, how about just throwing me out a number, one through 25? <laughs> Can I choose one? No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll choose, uh, I'll just say five. All right. See, I thought that see. might have something to do with the number of questions, but apparently it's no, 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 probably no, no. a bad assumption on my part. No, 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 no. All right. So I think this is a good one. Uh, New York or Chicago pizza? No, Chicago is deep dish. So Correct. I'm going to go with New York. Okay. And I, I like thin crust pizzas and... Uh, I don't know, it's something about too much crust. Maybe we're just kind of cutting down back on the carbohydrate or something like that, but um, thin pizzas for sure. Okay. All right. How about another one? That was easy. Right. Uh, another number? Uh, another let's number. Let's go. Okay, it's, uh, let's do um, 24. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Uh, what are your thoughts on aliens? Okay, well, good question. I mean, um, so <clears throat> I have to believe that the universe is, in, is infinite. And if the universe is infinite, then 
certainly there's hopefully there's life out there somewhere else in the universe and whether we've actually encountered it or not you know obviously is a big debate uh, i'd say there's that possibility so i don't i i mean i don't believe that aliens are watching maybe they're watching us maybe they're not but i certainly believe that there is other life out there and hopefully someday we'll have some confirmation of that but it is a pretty big universe and whether we bump into them or not is uh a matter of contention yet. So yes, I do believe in aliens. Nice. My my mother is a is a big fan, a big believer. She uh, she goes out to Sedona quite often, and that's probably like the second busiest alien after Roswell, right? Place so. after Roswell, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I get to hear about aliens all the time. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, how about one more, Jeff? Then I'll let you get out of here for real. Okay, eight. Hmm. See, I don't even know if this applies anymore, but uh, assuming your car has a CD player, what right. what the, what's the current CD in it right now? Well, I don't know if I... Actually, I'm trying to think if I have it. I, I think I got rid of the last car that had a CD in it. And uh, if I had a CD, which I don't think I... I'm trying to remember. I don't even know where my CDs went, so it tells you how much. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, this probably is a little bit of a dated question. But I, I used to listen to something like Moody Blues, so that also dates me quite a bit. So, see, no, that's good. That's good. I actually went out. I'll tell you this little story real quick. Um, I went out. I got a hundred CD jukebox. So something that you would have seen in a restaurant or bar. 20 years ago, I actually had that in my base or not my basement, my garage. And, uh, I don't know. I like the nostalgia of the whole thing. I, I enjoy just picking well, out songs that way. Well, I, you know, interesting enough, sometimes when I go to like Spotify or something like that, and I, I and I remember, you know, listening to an album, whether it was, you know, a cassette tape, you know, or, you know, then it became a CD, but if I hear the songs out of order, I'm listening to a group and and I hear the songs out of order, it just like disturbs me because yeah. it's, it, it's like, no, the song's going to come next. This is what I remember. And it's, and I, and I, I miss that. And uh, sometimes, um, you know, cause unless you actually get the full album on some kind of format that you can control that, you know, shuffle it or whatever. Then I think sometimes uh, the content of the music isn't what I liked, at least well, I still think I like so. Yes, no, very good. That is, and that is absolutely true with me too. Like I, you know, I, I can tell when if I'm playing Dark Side of the Moon, that's that's how it should be. It shouldn't be, you know, a song here and a song there. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, too much choice I think in this, in our world right now. But uh, again, that's the price of technology, and there's always the trade-offs. So. It was it was diff. Uh, using a hundred CDs, I. I Actually, it was much more difficult than I thought it would be. I bet it would be, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, with that, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for, for coming to uh, to my city last month and, and sharing everything with all of our attendees and uh, continuing to do it here with our listeners. So, um, once again, thank you, Jeff. I really do appreciate it. Hi, Jim. It. Thanks thanks for the opportunity. And I always uh, appreciate doing whatever I can for the fire service. Uh, it's a It's a great group. It deserves to have as much support from the obviously the communities and and uh, governments and, and any organizations because you guys do a hard job and uh, need to have the best support behind you. 
Perfect. Thank you. Now, so for all my listeners real quick, I know the audio might have sounded a little funny today. My <laughs> microphone decided to break down between uh, going to Canada, coming here. I'm going to just blame customs on that. But uh, uh, once again, please subscribe to the podcast, uh, leave, leave a review, and uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks again, everybody. Uh-huh.